The message is entangled. Uh, the metaphor is Absalom, David's son, ends up dying in 2 Samuel 18 in what we would call a metaphorical way. That is, his death becomes a picture of something. He actually dies hanging from a tree. Uh, commentators, because of the language, are not sure exactly what happened, but there's one view that his beautiful long hair that we've been talking about got caught in a tree branch, and he dangled from the branch and became a sitting duck for the forces of David, and he ended up dying that way. And I took the idea of being entangled, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this. Uh, for those of you who have hair, uh, sometimes your hair gets tangled. Now, uh, some years ago, my grandmother convinced me to use conditioner. And I was like, why do I need conditioner? She said, trust me, Michael, just use the conditioner. So I, I put conditioner in my hair. And it was an amazing discovery. The smoothness by which the, the comb now went through my hair. It was, it was great. Recently, I bought a pair of shoes and... Uh, you know, shoes are expensive these days, aren't they? And so I was like, I tried on the shoes and I like them. But I noticed that in the shoelace, there was a knot. And I asked the girl, I said, uh, did, did the shoes come like this? Or did somebody put a knot in these shoes? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> so apparently me whining and complaining about things has become becoming a trend. She rebuked me in the shoe store. But so I tried on these new shoes and I had to get a knot out of the shoelace. Now, I am not the most patient person with knots. I don't know about you guys. I normally hand it to my wife. Can you please deal with this? And she has the nails by which she can accomplish that. But if you have to get a knot out of something, especially a, a tight knot, what do you need? Patience, endurance, all that stuff. Somebody who can actually sit next to you and get the knot out. You know what I'm saying. Well, this image of being entangled is used in 2 Timothy 2.4. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says, No soldier, 2 Timothy 2.4, in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may, 2 Timothy 2.4, please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Can I ask you, are you an active soldier? You know, when I think about delivering a message like this, I want to give you guys solutions because sin so easily entangles us. And one way to keep from being entangled in sin is to be in active service so that you don't have time to do dumb things. Amen? When you're serving the Lord and you're active in serving the Lord, you're going to be less apt to sin because you're going to be busy in the Lord's service, and you're going to be depending upon the Lord. That's 2 Timothy 2.4. And let me just ask you, are you in the battle? Are you engaged in an active service? The second verse I want to show you is in Hebrews 12. Turn over there, Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews 11 is about all these people who uh, showed faith and, and ran the race, and it wasn't easy for them. They're all listed in Hebrews 11 called the Great Hall of Faith. And then in chapter 12, the writer says these words. He says, therefore, since we have 12.1, so great a cloud of witnesses that are mentioned in chapter 11, the great hall of faith, surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight or encumbrance and the sin which so what? Easily entangles us. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Another way to avoid getting entangled in sin is to run with freedom. You don't want to have weights on you when you're running the race. As a Christian, you don't want to be entangled in things that are slowing you down or messing you up. Are you entangled in something right now that keeps you from active service? Are you entangled in something right now that's keeping you from running free? Absalom hanging from this tree, if you turn over to 2 Samuel 18, becomes a picture of a man who could have done great things for God. He was David's son. He did not need to make this coup and pursue David's throne. He could have done great things as the prince Absalom. His name, Ab or Abba, father, and Salam as a form of Shalom, means father of peace. But that wasn't Absalom. Absalom did not have peace with his father. He did not have peace with God. He was not running the race in freedom. He was entangled in lust for power, lust for position, and lust to take his dad's throne. And it consumed him. And instead of coming to his father's side and saying, Dad, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for the sake of this kingdom because I know God's made you the king and I want to serve by your side. No, he wanted the power. He had to have the throne and he had to have it at all costs. And it cost him everything. And David was so grieved by what was happening. You, you'll recall that David had to flee from his throne. He had to flee from Jerusalem and up the Mount of Olives. He went with a whole group and they were crying and wailing. And he sent Hushai back to the city. And Ahithophel had betrayed David and jumped ship. And he had great wisdom. And he had given a plan to Absalom. Absalom was acting as the new king and he told him, you need to take your dad now. You need to do it tonight. Let me do it. Let me take him. But Hushai was there, and Hushai was there to protect David, although Absalom didn't really know it. And Hushai gave an alternate plan, and Absalom believed that plan. He followed that plan, and it cost him everything. And David went out into the wilderness, and the end of chapter 17, David uh, gets some supplies uh, brought to him. Look at 1727. David had come to Mahanaim. That's the place where Jacob wrestled with God and was renamed Israel. And David, I'm sure, was wrestling with many things. And the supplies were brought to him. You can see there's individuals that are named there. In verse 28, they brought beds, they brought basins, they brought pottery, they brought wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curd, sheep, cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat, for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And so supplies came. There was food and there was a, a chance to rest and a chance to recuperate. And chapter 18 opens with these words. Then David numbered the people, 18, 1, 2 Samuel, who were with him and set over the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds. Now, it would seem that at this point, people started to hear that there was a civil war, that Absalom had uh, taken the throne in Jerusalem, and people had to decide which side they were going to be on. Would they go with the man after God's own heart, God's anointed King David, or would they go to Absalom's side? And some people probably were thinking, you know, pragmatically, 
What side do you think is going to win? What side is going to be the best for me and my family? But a lot of people, it would seem, were still loyal to David. And they made their way to David somehow. Because you'll notice now, there are hundreds and thousands. And David splits up the people because he knows soon Absalom's going to be coming. And, and it's a tragic thing to know that your own son uh, is going to come with an army. And he's got his sights set on you to kill you. So David you know, felt responsible for the people. He was a great tactician and warrior himself. And so he began to organize his troops. And uh, Absalom was coming. Job 20 verse 5 says that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless is momentary. Though his loftiness reaches the heavens, his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Job 20 verses five through seven. Absalom's rebellion was going to be short-lived. Instead of him taking his place with his father and walking in the gifts and the position that God had given him, now he was gonna to try to take his own dad down and it was gonna spell his own demise. Absalom's testimony is a sad one. A son trying to take his father's place and uh, doing it not in God's time, not in God's way, and ending, ending up perishing because of it. David begins to organize the army, and he sent the people out, verse 2, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. He was a Philistine, actually loyal to David. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. Now, David began to organize the troops for battle, and he split them up in thirds under different commanders. This is what Jesus has commanded the church to do. There are different churches. There are different leaders in churches. And the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, the greater David, the anointed one, has given pastors and he's given teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And there's churches here and there in different places in different countries, and they are to set up the church to grow and minister. Speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, we're to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The head of the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, distributes spiritual gifts as he wills. He gives you a gift or maybe multiple gifts, and he puts you in the place that you belong to go out to war. Are you fighting the battle? The battle belongs to the Lord, but he has an army that he organizes and he has commanders and he has others. And he says, this is where you fit. This is your job. Now go and wage the war. Go into the spiritual battle. Go in and win people to Christ. The time is short. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And so he sent them out. He had Joab. He had Abishai. But the king said, I'm going to go out with you as well. <clears throat> Matthew 10, 16 says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. John 20, 21 says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And in Acts twenty two twenty one, 21, Paul says, 
He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God has a plan for your life. A plan for you to go and minister to people in your sphere of influence, in your school, at work. Be strategic. Be praying for people. Be looking for opportunities where God has sent you to fight the good fight of faith. Now, David said, I'm going to go. But the people said, verse 3, you should not go out. For if, indeed, if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better for you that you be ready to help us from the city. In this war chapter, they said, David, we don't want you to go out. Because if you go out, they won't care about us. They're going to try to kill you. That's what Absalom wants to do. Flip over to chapter 21. Look at verse 17 for a second. This shows up later, but this is the idea of their words. 21.17, it says, look at the middle of the, the verse. It says, then the men of David, 21.17, swore to him saying, you shall not go out again with us to battle that you may not extinguish the lamp of Israel. We are fighting this battle for you and I want you to see the connection, go back to chapter 18, between David and Jesus. We are fighting this battle for you. You are the light of Israel. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not remain in darkness. He will have the light of life. And they said, we don't want that light to go out. David, you have shown us a light. Even as imperfect as David was and how guilty he may have felt, he was still a light to his people. And you're a light at work. Even when you don't feel like you're shining the brightest light at work, remember, the Lord is the light in your life. All you gotta do is get out of the way and let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. If people need to put sunglasses on when you come into the room, praise the Lord. It's all right. You're doing your job. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? David wrote that. The Lord is my light. Why was David a light to his people? Because the Lord was his light. So the king said to them, 18.4, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Now David was no wimp, and David wanted to go out to battle. We could ask the question, why? And we're going to find out that he's going to say something to these commanders as to part of what's on his heart, and here's what it was. He didn't want Absalom to die. And it may be that David wanted to go out because he felt like if there's a situation where he has to have a confrontation with his son, he's going to try to reason with his son. How many of you have seen the latest Star Wars movie? I think it's the, it's the one where uh, Han Solo meets his son on the bridge. You remember that? And uh, he's trying to talk his son away from the dark side, right? And, and you kinda, you're sitting in the movie theater and you're thinking, now this is good. And the, the, this kid... Hopefully he's going to come back home. He's going to come back to reason. He's going to come back to his parents. But then he takes his lightsaber and, and he hits Han. And it's a terrible scene. And I, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm so sorry. I, I just, if you haven't seen it by now, what's wrong? I mean, come on. But I'm, I apologize. But anyway, so here it is. We've already opened the door. So here it is. 
It goes through him, and Han ah, dies, and everybody in the movie, movie theater is like, oh, wow. I mean, I think that David felt like maybe he could talk some sense into Absalom. Maybe he could say, son, stop this. I don't want to be at war with you. I'll give you everything I have, but don't do it this way. They said, stay in the gate. Stay in the city. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. The king charged Joab and Abishai, verse five, and Ittai, saying, these three commanders, he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. The king's emotions were tangled. He loved his son despite all that Absalom had done and was doing. And he said, please, I have one request. Please go easy on my son. Now, the people who were going out to war, the people who had been in the wilderness, been inconvenienced, wanted nothing but to take Absalom out because Absalom was at the heart of their problems. But David said to them, please spare him. And he gave them a charge. When the king charges you to do something, it's not a suggestion, it's a solemn charge. In 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul gives Timothy a solemn charge in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which are useless, but to be diligent, to be approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. In 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. These are not suggestions. These are charges. I charge you in the presence of God. This is what you're to do. David wanted them to go easy on Absalom. And you might be asking the question, why would David do this? Absalom had killed Amnon. He had ravaged David's harem. He had usurped his throne. Why would David want to go easy on Absalom? Because David was a dad. And that's all I need to say. Because if you're a parent, you never stop loving your children no matter what happens. And David was a father. And by the way, David could relate to Absalom because everything that Absalom had done, David had done. David had committed adultery. David had committed murder. And David had been forgiven by God. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? And David felt responsible for what Absalom was doing, at least to some degree. So he said, please, if you come across my son, please go easy on him. The people went out into the field, verse six, against Israel. The people represent David. Israel is now those on Absalom's side. And it would appear that Absalom's army is much bigger than David's. And so they went out into the field and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Just a side note, this may mean that the battle took place on the west side of the Jordan. There may have been other battles that took place on the east side of the Jordan, and Israel would have been pushed back across to the west side. But the forest of Ephraim is part of the Holy Land or part of the Promised Land, the tribe of Ephraim you can recognize there. And so they went into the field, into the forest, and this is where the battle took place. And the people of Israel, that's Absalom's side now, nation fighting against its own nation, you know, people against its own people. But Israel, Absalom's side, were defeated there before the servants of David. 
and the slaughter there that day was great. 20,000 men died. 20,000 casualties. And for what? For a power struggle? What's, what's at the heart of most war? A struggle for power. What's at the heart of war in families? A struggle for power. A struggle sometimes over money that's been left by some relative, really. And there are casualties. What's at the heart of war today? Both outside and inside the church. Oh, it happens in the church as well. Well, it's, James says it's because you lust. And you want what you want. And the battle there was spread over the whole countryside of the forest, devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. I don't quite know what to make of this language, if this is metaphorical, but we do know that the forest devoured Absalom, as we're going to see. Absalom actually had a tree branch uh, become his demise. And I couldn't help but think of the Lord of the Rings movies when the trees get involved in that battle. How many of you? Come on now. Come on. Lord of the, all right, good. Now, the trees were called Ents, I think. The last charge of the Ents, little hobbits. And they, yeah, if you haven't seen it, <laughs> repent and return to your first movie selections. I, I don't know. But anyway, how, how about this? How about the trees in the Wizard of Oz? Come on, Anybody? Dorothy takes an apple. What are you taking my apple for? And then the scarecrow engages the tree. Well, she doesn't want one of your apples because it has little green worms in it. Are you saying my apples aren't what they ought to be? I'll show you how to get apples. Okay, you haven't seen the movie? Again, they ended up with apples. That's where the saying, how do you like those apples, comes from. Maybe. (laughs) And Absalom, now Absalom, verse 9, happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule. A mule was a royal uh, mode of transport. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. Now remember, they're in a forest. It seems to be very dense. And his head caught fast in the oak. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, or NIV says he was in midair, when the mule that was under him kept going. Now there are some commentators that believe that Absalom may have been looking around, distracted in the battle. The mule is riding along and his neck got caught between a branch and the bows of a branch. That's a possibility. There are others, and I think more ancient commentators believe his hair got caught in the branch. Whatever it may be, he was dangling there suspended in midair between heaven and earth, and the donkey kept going. (laughs) Hey! I think Absalom was probably whistling for the donkey. Come back! Donkey kept going, just like Absalom's kingdom was about to disappear. The donkey kept going. And so, if you look at chapter 17, verse 14, it tells us who's behind this. 17.14 says, middle of the verse, for the Lord had ordained to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel in order that the the Lord might bring what? Calamity on Absalom. The Lord, 
who is over nature, was behind this. Job 5.13 says, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. And when a certain man saw it, saw what happened to Absalom, he told Joab, and he said, Behold, I just, NIV, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. He ran over to the commander. Joab seems to be over the whole army. And he says, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. This will be the end of me. It became a Sabbath school song. You guys never heard that one before? Absalom hanging in the tree? That's because it never existed before right now. (laughs) So your perplexed look is correct. (laughs) Absalom was dangling in the tree, low-hanging fruit, a sitting duck, I don't know what else. How else to describe it? An Israeli pinata? That's good. That's good. I'll add that for second service. (laughs) God stopped Absalom right in his tracks with a tree. God can use anything he wants to use. By the way, he has a history of using donkeys as well. Remember that story? So the mule rode off, the tree had, you know, Absalom by the neck, and Absalom's just dangling there. The guy that was so handsome, so good-looking, so powerful, had this great strategic plan in place, and a tree branch stopped him. Come on now, there's some humor there. But on a serious note, anyone who hangs on a tree, according to Deuteronomy 21:23, is under what? The curse of God. Isn't it interesting that Ahithophel hung himself and now we have Absalom hanging in a tree and Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. This is how they would uh, execute someone who had violated the Torah, the law. Had Absalom violated the law? Oh yes. Who was meeting out the judgment? Who put him on the tree, if you will? The Lord. The Lord was dealing with Absalom. And we know that Jesus Christ was hung on a tree for us, though completely innocent. God the Father treated him as though he had committed our sins, including the sins of Absalom, the sins of the whole world. Then Joab said to the man, verse 11, who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. I would have given you a trophy and, and money. I would have given you treasure, a champion's belt. It would have been yours, kid. And the man said to Joab, even if I should receive a 1,000 pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, protect for me the young man Absalom. Don't do any harm to him. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, 13, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You wouldn't have had my back. Don't expect that I would have break, broken the king's law here. And Joab said, I will not waste any more time here with you. So he took, you know, this is a bit of, bit of a impugning of Joab's character, right? Because Joab is telling people to go against the direct command of the king. And Joab was a bit of a loose cannon at times. And so Joab said, I'm not going to hear you anymore, little man. Get out of the way. 
And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. He took three spears and killed the king's son while he dangled there. Remember, the account is very abridged, so we don't have the travel that took place. How long did Absalom dangle there? We don't know, but we know that Absalom is there in the tree and he's stuck. And don't you imagine he was probably crying out to people? Don't you think there were some people around? Help me, get me out of here. And apparently nobody came to Absalom's rescue. And now Joab takes these spears, shows up at the tree, and pierces them into the heart of Absalom. When Jesus was dying on the cross in John 19.34, one of the Roman soldiers, to make sure he was dead, took a spear and pressed it into his heart. And blood and water flowed out. And, you know, the language here uh, seems to be that there was a, a mortal wound given by Joab. But notice what happens. And 10 young men who carried Joab's armor, their armor bearers for this commander, gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. They finished him off. So I don't know if he was still barely alive. I don't know if in, in the uh, thing that Joab did, if he, he stabbed him and then he fell down from the tree and then these 10 circled around Absalom and finished him off. But whatever the case may be, Absalom was dead. The Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I want you guys to see this for a second because this is extremely important for your understanding of the theology of the cross. Jesus was hung on a tree on the cross, not because he sinned. He became accursed for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus is affixed to the cross, it is not for his transgressions. It's for yours. It's for mine. And Jesus is being treated as a common criminal as though he had sinned against God the Father because he decided he would take the place that you and I deserved. And he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He died for the sinful ways of people like Absalom and people like Michael, and you could put your name in there. He died on the tree for you and for me. And Joab blew the trumpet 16, and the people returned from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained the people. Once Absalom was dead, they figured all bets were off. They blew the shofar. The people heard it. They took Absalom and they cast him into a deep pit in the forest. They did not bury him in a family tomb, which would be an honorable burial, but put him in a pit, how apropos, and erected over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled each to his tent. By the way, Achan was buried in this way under stones. And so was Ai, Joshua 7.26 and Joshua 8.29. And all Israel the, on the side of Absalom uh, fled to his tent. They heard Absalom was dead. They heard what had happened. They fled. Everybody went home and they were probably hoping that David would not deal harshly with him. And now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, a sign of what he thought he would be. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name, 
and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. There is a monument in Israel today. They don't think it's, it's back to this time. But this, this King's Valley may have been part of the Kidron Valley. And Absalom in chapter 14, verse 27, is said to have had three sons. So what happened? All we can say is it would appear that Absalom's sons died young. And so at this point in Absalom's life, he builds a monument to preserve his name, but his monument is a monument of shame. When I say Absalom, what do you think of? If you haven't read this story before, now from this point forward, you hear Absalom and you're going to think traitor, fool, unwise. See, they can make a monument to you. The question is, what does the monument represent? You could have a statue out in front of a stadium. You can have a monument in a cemetery. But what you did with that dash between two dates is all that really matters. You have one life. One dash between a date you're born and a date you die. I, I read a lot of theology books. And I, I'm getting more and more interested in dates of people's lives as I read. And I'll read a scholar and It'll say he was born in 1854 and died in 1908. Now I, I start calculating. I said, shoot, he was in his 50s. And then I read another scholar and he was in his 50s. Another one in his 60s. Another one was in his 70s. And another one died in his early 50s. And then there's some scholars, they write a book and it gives the date of their birth and there's a dash and there's no date at the end yet because they're still alive. And I wonder if you read your own book how that makes you feel. Hmm, <laughs> Let's see, there is going to be another date there somewhere. Someone's going to write something with an end date on there at some point. And the question is going to be, what, how did I live? Did I live for what is going to last? The kingdom of God? What's your monument? What's your legacy? Well, Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said to, uh, the son of Zadok said, please let me run and bring the king news that the Lord had freed him from the hand of his enemies, 20. But Joab said to him, you are not the man to carry news this day, but you shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Now, Ahamaz was thinking, well, this is great. I wanna be, I wanna be a runner and I'm gonna go run to the king's location. I'm gonna bring the happy news that He's been freed and everybody's fleeing back and, and the war's over. But, but the response was, no, you're not gonna be the one to carry the news because I've got news for you. The king is not gonna see this as good news. This is gonna be bittersweet. Yes, his life is now protected, but his son is dead. This is gospel language, by the way. To carry news is gospel language. And Romans 10, 15 says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Here's the image from Romans 10, 15. A runner, no cell phone, no texting back in the day, would run. And the way that he ran as he approached the king's location would tell you everything about how the war was going. If he ran kind of downhearted, then the king would say, oh, the news is bad. If he was running like this, <laughs> then it was good. Some of you have never run like this before. But anyway, next time you exercise, try to exercise with a smile on your face. 
Anyway, that's just some free advice. <laughs> 21. Then Joab said to the Cushite, he's a foreigner from the area south of Egypt, part of the sons of Ham, Genesis 10:6. He had attached himself to David. So the Cushite bowed and ran. He said, you go and tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed and ran. I don't know if uh, bowed to Joab and ran. I don't know if Joab wanted a foreigner to go just in case something bad happened. I mean, David had a bit of a reputation of hearing bad news and people wouldn't last in his presence. So Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, once more uh, said once more to Joab, whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. I feel like running, king. I want to run or to Joab. And so he said to him, run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. Now, I don't know if this became a race or what, but Ahamaz uh, went ahead and David was sitting between the two gates. The watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, raised his eyes and looked and behold, a man running by himself. The watchman called to, and told the king who was certainly waiting for news of how the battle had gone. And the king said, if he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth, 25. And he came nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, This one also is bringing good news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. The king said, This is a good man and comes with good news. And Ahamaz came and said to the king, All is well, that's shalom. All is well, peace. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. I bring peace, I bring good news. And the king said, here's, here's his focus. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahamaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I, I did not know what it was. He kind of tried to skirt the issue. He knew that the king's son was dead. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside, he stood still, and behold, the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. May anyone who tries to ever do anything against you be like him. And David knew that Absalom was dead. It's hard to deliver news like this. It's hard to say to someone in a dark moment of their life, your loved one is gone. I was reading Warren Wearsby and he said, the Cushite tried to share the hard news with a with tact and a positive view. Someone has defined tact as the knack of making a point without making an enemy. Tact is the knack of making a point without making an enemy. And tact can become something that you get better at as you go on in life, but there's no easy way to say to the king, your son is dead. And so he said, well, let anybody who comes up against you be like this young man, and David knew. And David, when he was told a story by Nathan in chapter 12, verse 6, said there should be a fourfold repayment. 
Think of this. The baby died. The uh, relationship between Bathsheba and David. Tamar was raped. Amnon was slain. And now Absalom is dead. And David has tasted once again the fourfold judgment of his own sin. By his own judgment, it was judged back to him. Jesus said, by your own measure of judgment, it will be judged back to you. And even though David was forgiven, he had some deep cost and deep hurt. Final verse. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he, he said as he walked, he was pacing, and he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Would I have died in the tree instead of you? And a thousand years later, the greater, greater David would say, I will die in the tree instead of you. I will do what David desired to do, to die for a wayward son. I will die for you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us and demonstrated his love for us in that while we were wayward Absaloms, do you feel it for yourself? While I was an enemy of God, that's when Jesus died for me. Not when I had my life perfectly together. Not when everything, you know, when I could say, okay, maybe I'll be acceptable in heaven's eyes. No, when I was Absalom, my king died on the tree for me and for you. That's the gospel. Good news of great joy. That's for all the people. I believe that David's tears are a foreshadowing of the tears of Jesus who cried at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who cried over the city of Jerusalem, who weeps over a rebellious son who has died. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, And God is not willing that any perish, but what? All come to repentance. See, no matter what had happened, David would always love his son. And no matter what you and I do, this is hard to fathom in our world that's so wired for achievement gets you back grace or favor. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Now, God wants you to work. He wants you to be actively serving him. But you don't get saved, saved by works. You get saved by what? Grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Father, we are humbled by your love for us. At some point in eternity past, and I don't know how all of that works, Jesus, you said, I will die in the tree for Absalom's. Father, I will pay their price. And though you were completely innocent, Jesus, you were treated on the tree as though you had committed my sins and the collective sins of all humanity. And it's so hard to even fathom that you became a curse for us that we might become in you the righteousness of God. You took our shame, our sin, our shortcomings, our lusts, all the evils that we have done, and you nailed them to the cross, to the tree. 
Oh, what a glorious Savior we have who would die for sins that others committed. David longed to be the man that could die for his son, but you are the God who died for your children. I want to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed if you are not sure that you're in that new covenant through the blood of Jesus. If you're not sure that maybe you feel like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm Absalom against my heavenly father. I've been, I've been trying to usurp his throne. I've, I've been trying to sit on my own throne. Why don't you just come to him now? He wants you to have life. But you have, you have to have a moment when you decide to join his kingdom, to be part of his army, to not fight him anymore, to not think that you can save yourself. Let go of your bitterness. Let go of the desire to control everything and release that to the Lord. Something like this. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not done this, do it now. Jesus, thank you so much. Pray it if it's you for coming down and dying on that cross for me. Thank you that you took my pain, my shame, my sin, my guilt, and you took it and nailed it to the cross. Thank you for forgiveness in you. I turn from my sin. I turn from trying to do things my own way. And I turn to you through your son. I ask that you'd forgive me. I believe in your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead. I turn my life over to you. Father, for those who have done that or maybe prodigals who have recommitted their lives, may you wash them in your grace. May you bless them with the sweetness of removing the load of guilt and weight of sin and tangled messes that we create. May you untangle the mess. And may you make us truly free. In Jesus' name, amen.